For part one of our fifth interview, Dr. Stephen Lindheim chats with Dr. Stephen Corson. Sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy what we think are valuable lessons about our history, sparking innovation, and newer surgical applications of reproductive surgery. Welcome. It is with great pleasure that I'm introducing Dr. Stephen L. Corson. Uh, Dr. Corson is a graduate from Wesleyan University in 1960 and from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in 1964. Following a rotating internship at Reading Hospital, he entered an obstetrics and gynecology residency at the Pennsylvania Hospital in 1965. Upon completion of that program, he took a fellowship program with Drs. Rakoff and Goldfarb in reproductive endocrine at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Corson is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and in reproductive endocrinology. After many years in the University of Pennsylvania medical school system, he moved to Thomas Jefferson University, where he was the head of the gynecologic reproductive endocrine section. His society charter memberships include AAGL, SRS, SREI, SRE, ISGE, and SAR. Dr. Corson has many instrument inventions to his credit, including the Corson aspirator, irrigator, the myoma grasping forceps, the dolphin system for hysteroscopic fluid management, and other endoscopic equipment. He has served on various professional boards and committees and is a past president of the American Association of Gynecologic Laparoscopists. He has taught laparoscopy and hysteroscopy in postgraduate courses in five continents. His editorial experience includes that of associate editor for the Journal of Reproductive Medicine, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Infertility, and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Minimally Invasive Gynecology. He has published over 200 papers in peer-reviewed journals and has, and has edited or contributed to over 60 textbooks. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Dr. Corson. You know, I, I'd like to start this off uh, for the listeners uh, today is that, uh, you know, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your family and, uh, um, you know, where you're at today? Uh, well, I'm a graduate of Wesleyan University and the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. Um, my wife and I will uh, celebrate our 59th year uh, in December. Uh, two children, a boy and a girl. My daughter is married with three daughters. My son uh, is, uh, my son has two children, a boy and a girl. And um, let's see what else. Well, I practiced at Pennsylvania Hospital almost all of my career and then a little bit at Jefferson, uh, holding uh, positions there at both places. Uh, I edited the JMIG for a decade and um, Let's see what else. Uh, that's enough. <laughs> well, so tell me, tell me who your some of your mentors were, and how did you end up coming into this uh, to this field? Because when by the time I got I got linked to you, you were you were so innovative and so advanced. It was uh, so impressive. Well, coming out of college, I had wrestled with what I wanted to do, and medicine was certainly one of them. Uh, there were no, no doctors in my immediate family. And the other was to be a classical musician. And I just reasoned out that it would probably be easier to be a successful 
innovative physician than it was to be a great musician. So I went into, in, into medicine and then it was a weeding out process of uh, what did I not want to do? And I remember as a medical student, that test where they put you in a chair and put water in your ear and spin you around. And if you don't throw up, you have a brain tumor, um, something like that. And I thought that obstetrics and gynecology would be um, sort of a happy kind of a, of a career for me. And at Pennsylvania Hospital, the chief then was uh, Esleon Israel, who had written essentially the first book on infertility. And uh, he was uh, just a marvelous person. And that's how I wound up uh, doing uh, endocrinology and infertility. And I always had an interest in uh, instrumentation so that throughout the years, um, I sort of invented as we went along uh, instruments that, that I thought would be useful and helpful. Dr. Israel clearly was an inspirational leader. Are there anyone else uh, that you would say uh, molded your career? Um, not nearly so much as he. Uh, okay. Patrick Steptoe certainly was an inspiration. Uh, Pat Patrick had so many failures early on before his first success that a lesser person would have would have given up the quest, but he he was he was persistent, he, and he kept at it, and he was truly an inspiration. Uh, I was invited to go to Bourne Hall when when he went to, when he acquired Bourne Hall, and that was really that was really something else. He he uh, he was a giant. When you think about you look back on your career, um, you know clearly there are a lot of uh, supporters of everything that you were doing. They were so, you know, provocative and innovative, but like, tell me about some of the antagonists uh, in your career and how did you weather through uh, some of those things as you were creating some of these novel surgical tools, for example? Well, there was one editor who will go nameless, who uh, wrote an editorial that uh, this business about laparoscopy was dangerous and it, we were going to kill people. And, uh, we didn't kill anybody and it wasn't dangerous. And it finally was proven to, to be uh, a good alternative to open surgery for, for a, lot of, uh, a lot of issues. Uh, it was a fight. In those early years, getting your paper published in a major OBGYN journal was really difficult. And to its credit, the Laparoscopy Society, which Jordan Phillips formed, and that's another person who should go down in history for being farsighted. Uh, he founded a, a, an organization of people who were willing to get out on a limb and do things that other people thought were crazy, but it wasn't crazy. But that, that's true for anybody who really wants to innovate. Uh, there's always been a, a negativity. Uh, there's been a status quo. This is the way I do it, and I don't want to learn anything else, and it's, it served me well. And, you know, you have to overcome that. Can you embellish on how laparoscopy came to Philly, as you and I would call it, in 1967, you know? And like, what were some of the early successes, failures, you know, uh, that you had to overcome? Well, um, as I say, I, I went out and uh, 
to to Chicago and sp spent time with uh, Mel Cohen and uh, came back and we sort of learned as we went along. Uh, in those days, it, it, it was, uh, they called us, we were called cowboys and that was as a derogatory term. Uh, but I could call up an instrument company and say, you know, I, I need a certain instrument to do this and, and, and maybe I'll, I'll send you a drawing and can you do it? And within two weeks I had a prototype. And I mean, those were, those were halcyon days. And, and we, would, we had a, a cadre of, of like-minded individuals who would get on the phone and talk to each other about our experiences and what went well and what didn't go well. And I remember the furor that erupted when uh, the first uh, laparoscopic treatment for, for uh, ectopic pregnancy was done. I mean, that was just, you know, sort of malpractice. I was thought of being absolute malpractice. And little by little, the, the, there was acceptance. And it was a good thing that there was a journal that developed uh, that was basically devoted to endoscopy. First, it was all laparoscopy before hysteroscopy came in. But we, there, we had to fight in those days headwinds. The academic community uh, was not very accepting of, of this procedure in the beginning. So what do you, what do you think changed? What, what is there a sentinel? Well, part of it was, Stephen, part of it was, I think, patient, patient pressure. Um, just like women uh, rebelled against radical mastectomies that were not really necessary for the disease that they had and were disfiguring, Women wanted methods of sterilization that were easy, that could be done as an outpatient procedure and home the same night. So that I think what, what drove laparoscopy in the very beginning was so-called Band-Aid sterilization, where somebody could have an outpatient procedure and be home that night with the family and have a Band-Aid on her belly that was off the next morning. So that, that's what actually drove it in the very beginning. And then what came along, of course, were, was easier access to intra-abdominal pathology, ovarian cysts, uh, ectopic pregnancies, uh, down the line, uterine suspensions, and you know all those more involved procedures followed. But what drove laparoscopy in the beginning was not a procedure to enhance fertility, but the opposite. I know that uh, you expanded uh, over to the Philippines and into China. Tell me, uh, tell me about those experiences. Well, the, the Philippines, that, that was interesting because uh, there was a real population boom in the Philippines and it was a problem. And they appealed to, the, uh, to, to us for uh, AID for uh, help. And I was asked to go and to teach uh, laparoscopic sterilization. Now, the deal was that it had to be, the instruments had to be done by an American, had to be manufactured in America. Uh, that was one of the ground rules. And there were, at that time, there were no American companies. But up in, uh, outside of Philadelphia, there was a little company. Uh, and the engineer who had founded that company was Bill Nepshield. And Bill fashioned 
an itinerant portable laparoscopy case, sort of like those big zero aluminum suitcases. And in this case was the following, all or were the following, all the laparoscopic tools that we needed at the time, a generator for the light and a generator for, for uh, electrosurgery, the gas source, the light source, the insufflator, everything was in this big, sort of like a zero aluminum suitcase. So one could be an itinerant uh, laparoscopist and go from place to place. So I got sent uh, to the Philippines uh, to teach this. And we operated in hospitals, we operated in Quonset huts, um, uh, outpatient clinics, just about anywhere. In fact, this, this kit could run on batteries. I could have done laparoscopic procedures on the, on the hood of a Jeep. Because hmm. in Manila, uh, the, the people came down in, in Jeeps from the hills to have this procedure done. And we uh, developed a, a pretty quick procedure. It was done under local anesthesia with an operating uh, channel laparoscope using fallope rings, yun bands. And we could do a sterilization under local with a little uh, Valium drip and it skin to skin was nine minutes. Uh, and then mm. these women would, Filipino women were, were, were small and they were in the, in one place we had a recovery room that was a linen closet. We had two women in one bed toe to toe where they would spend a half an hour post-op and then get in the Jeeps and go back up in the hills. And uh, I thought that was pretty neat, all under local. And one day I was operating with a very skilled surgeon, Virgilio Oplopius, who actually had spent time in Chicago with Jack Shiera. And he said to me, would you like to see how I would do sterilizations before you came? I said, yeah. So he put the patient up in a knee chest position, a little local in the posterior cul-de-sac, a small incision, reached up with a long babcock, brought a tube down, tied and cut, did the other tube, a single figure of eight suture in the vagina, operating time, eight minutes, which taught me a great lesson, a great lesson that I never forgot. And that is that we are seduced by the siren call of high technology. But that's not always the best way to do something. And I kept that in mind throughout my surgical career and try to teach that to other people is that it's, it's easy to fall in love with instrumentation and gadgets. And, I, and I'm not knocking instrumentation, but sometimes there are simpler ways of doing things and this was one of them. So I learned a great lesson from that. Thank you.